0: Oh my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes. In L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm and we will see you there. Come on out, Waggers. Come out, Waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding.
1: (laughs) So what do you think went on (laughs) <laughs> if anything, between Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. You think, how how was that to decide who's the first one to actually walk on the moon? How would you have felt about it?
2: If I, uh, how would I have felt about going yeah, on the moon? Yeah, if you or? were either not picked or you, I mean, how how, how would like it to, have worked? To be the second guy on the moon? Yeah. That's a pretty good assignment. I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, that was tough I like going though on, for them? I'd like to go on another jet ride.
1: Jordan, good to see you today. You as well. uh, Hey, uh, you know, Jordan, it was interesting. You know, all over the news, I want to get your take on this. Elon Musk buying Twitter. I mean, this guy is everywhere, isn't he? It's unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, he's got, what, $240 billion? I guess you can throw some money around. What do you think about it?
3: I think it's it's, it's all a freaking game. I... You know, the, the, it feels like I, I was reading up on some of the details of his Twitter, uh, proposal, and some people are speculating that the numbers he gave are an inside joke referencing 420, the infamous marijuana number, uh, uh, as I'm sure you know, Governor, and I, I do feel like perhaps it's a funny internet joke, uh, or it's the example of some people have too much money, and the fact that they have so much money that they just want to buy a social media platform so they can troll it feels like not a great byproduct of the society we're in. But maybe, maybe not a
1: serious offer. And as you know, I drive a Tesla, and that was a great creation. And uh, you know I, that that give him credit for that. He's my guy's just really a brilliant guy, right? He's I, just a I, little know, little
3: different. I, I will tell you, and I, I went down the. I I don't have a Tesla. I. I have received multiple calls from you while driving the Tesla at a right, charging yeah. station with yeah, right. having, having already gone through all the other people you needed to talk to, waiting <laughs> for the thing to charge. You're like, I guess I'll give Jordan a call. Uh, ben did hear a little bit. Uh, but I think the Tesla is incredible. I think it's, he, he has big ideas. The idea that he wants to, uh, I, I think the, the giant battery farm and the, the plan for making it affordable and the three tiered system for, uh, the rollout with the cars, I think, is a, a brilliant move. I was big on the Tesla game, really curious about the SpaceX game, less into the uh, comedy hosting Twitter troll game. That, he's he's losing me a bit on that one.
1: Now, let's talk for a second, because I know you and your dad, your son, Wit, uh, who's still not going to know what baseball is, you're going to go to a baseball game. And so, you know, this Clayton Kershaw, you know, who pitches for the Dodgers, you know, he went seven innings with a perfect game, and then they yanked him. And he said he he was glad that they yanked him. What what did you think about that? I mean, two more innings. A perf- there haven't been many perfect games in the history of baseball.
3: <laughs> I mean, I'm of a couple minds. First of all, it's a long season. I think the last I checked, uh, a year of baseball is is three years long uh, in Earth Earth time. I believe yeah, so. You got it. You got to space it out. But at some point, yeah, maybe. My instinct is if you are an audience member who paid the money and you get to watch a perfect game, the only way that game is not the most boring baseball game to watch is if you watch the completion of a historic event. Instead, you just watched nothing happen for seven innings and then the guy who made nothing happen decide to go to the showers early. That to me is not necessarily worth the price of admission. So I don't know. Clayton, that's like, that's
1: like, you know what? That's like having a a guy going up to slam dunk one to win the game and in midair, he just, falls back down and says, I'm I'm done. I'm not going to finish. I'm not going to complete it.
3: Did you see the, who is the basketball player that recently uh, checked in for like all of five seconds of the the start of the basketball game because he needed to start a certain number of games in the season to get his bonus. And he checked in, followed somebody, walked out and didn't play anymore. Uh,
1: but, well, you know, when I played basketball, if I, I got to check in for five seconds, I could, you know, that was the worst thing in the world. The coach is looking down the bench, go ahead in there, you know, for like five seconds. Then you got to go to the shower and all that. I I just hated it. I'll tell you a a funny story since we do have uh, an astronaut with us today. And it involves two guys, Jim Perry, who was a great pitcher for the Cleveland Indians and he pitched for the Minnesota Twins, and Gaylord Perry, who was his brother, who pitched for the uh, San Francisco uh, Giants. So it is a true story, Jordan. A true story. Jim Perry was pitching for Minnesota. His manager was Billy Martin. He and his wife were at the top of the needle in Seattle having dinner. And the game goes into extra innings, and he's ready to go back to the clubhouse. And Billy Martin calls and says, "Hey, finish dinner. We're gonna we're gonna delay the game. We'll finish it tomorrow, and you're gonna start the next game because he was scheduled to start the next game. So you wrap up the first one. You'll pitch the second one. See how long you can go." Gaylord Perry's over in San Francisco. And the reporter goes up to Gaylord Perry, or Gaylord Perry's manager, and says, Gaylord Perry is like the worst hitter in the history of baseball. Do you think that he could ever hit a home run? And and, uh, the manager laughs. He says, yeah, a man will walk on the moon when that happens. So the next day comes. Jim Perry finishes the first game. I think he drives in the winning run. He goes the distance in the second game, wins two games on one day. And Gaylord Perry hits a home run in that game, and it was the same day that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. That's (laughs) a true story. Is that (laughs) unbelievable?
3: That's pretty amazing. Although the guy who's making the comment, yeah, somebody will walk on the moon, but knowing that there's actually a a ship heading towards the moon, he's (laughs) definitely hedging his bets.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right, why don't you go ahead and let us know who we're going to talk to today.
3: Oh, we got, we got, we're, this, today's guest is, out of this world You like <laughs> See what I did there? This is, this is what they came for Thank you, all, all of you listeners Thank you for putting up with today's Today's edition of Old Sports Stories and Fun Little Puns By uh, Jordan and the Gov uh, no, Our guest today is a former NASA astronaut and the first person To tweet from space He's a New York Times best-selling author of Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey To unlock the secrets of the universe And also, Spaceman, the true story of a young boy his journey to becoming an astronaut. He's currently a professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University and the senior advisor of space programs at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's Mike Massimino. Mike, how are you? Good, Jordan. How are you doing? Great, great to speak to you and the governor. Thanks so for having it's, me. It's First of all, can you get me any kind of a discount if I want to go to the Intrepid? It's, yes? Yes. I can get you in. Yeah, you got to come with me, though. Okay. I can get you in. You can get me in. Can you get me? Can I sit in the cockpit of of what? Is there an F-14 on the Intrepid? If nobody knows, it's a beautiful aircraft carrier.
2: There is an F-14. But unfortunately, with these museum pieces, uh, they kind of gut the inside of the the airplane because a lot of that stuff can still be used when the military hands these things over. So there's nothing inside of the airplane. Uh, It's just, but you can get to see it from the outside. But the Concorde,
1: hey, isn't the Concorde on the uh, Intrepid? There is that
2: one you can get in. That, How about yeah. that, so The Concorde, yeah. Actually, the, the, the Concorde—that's uh, a very good point, Governor. The Concorde is there, and we can get you inside of that thing. That one, that one is open to the public. But most of the other aircraft, they don't have it, the ejection seats been taken out, and the panels. Uh, Some things in there, but they don't let you
3: inside. But we can get you in a Concorde. <laughs> I'm I'm going to hold you to this because sure, I, yeah, my well, pleasure. I, I will say I think every. I won't say every, but gosh darn, a lot of kids grow up. uh, I, for one, was one of them who uh, dreams of driving an F-14 Tomcat, wanting to go to space to become an astronaut. I think you want to become traditionally, what do you want to be, a cowboy, a football player, or an astronaut? Uh, I had them all, but astronaut was definitely uh, right up there on my list, going down to Cape Canaveral as a kid, uh, learning all about the history of NASA. But it always felt like something that, you know, was was it a real thing you could actually become it was something you could read about but you got to live this out was that was that a dream of yours uh growing up
2: yeah it was jordan but i, I was not a fighter pilot not a military person um i i am old enough to remember neil armstrong on the moon you mentioned that day in <laughs> the baseball like like the baseball I'm a huge baseball fan myself but i re, i remember that event and it made me want to grow up to be like neil armstrong but by the time i was 8 years old man i I knew I wasn't going to grow up to be like Neil Armstrong. I was—I I discovered I was afraid of heights very early. My parents took me to this place, High Point, New York, which is named correctly, and I didn't like it up there. And and, uh, and I still don't like heights. And, yes, it is problematic for an astronaut to be afraid of heights. But I didn't like that. I didn't like going very fast. I wasn't, you know, even on my bicycle. I was not a thrill seeker. Um, but when I, uh, as I got older, I studied engineering and uh, – I went to see the movie, The Right Stuff, when I was in college. If you've seen, I read the book by Tom Wolfe, and it kind of rekindled that interest I had as a little boy. And the space program has changed. It's changed so much, even just the last couple of years. But between Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and the mid-1980s when I was in college, it wasn't just military test pilots. It was scientists and engineers also going. And so I thought, well, maybe this, this could work out. And, and I decided to pursue it and see what would happen.
3: I Now, I got a chance to talk to Scott Kelly, who even mm-hmm. offline we were talking a little bit about, and yeah. he had a similar story about The Right Stuff, which yeah. I, went, I went and yeah. read after. I hadn't read The Right Stuff at yeah. the point, and It kind of blew my mind. An incredible yeah. book. What, what is it about that, that that essentially birthed perhaps the modern space movement?
2: I, well, I think. Well, Scott is a good friend of mine. and We were talking earlier. I'm going to see him tonight for dinner, so I'm looking forward to that. I haven't seen him for a while. Still waiting um, on my invite. Well, you're welcome to join us if you're anywhere in town. But we're going to – he actually introduced me to Tom Wolfe, the author. Um, Scott became friends with him. He wrote to him, and he became friends with him, and I got introduced to Tom uh, through Scott. Um, but that book is – I think what it did is um, it, it, it sort of captured um, the camaraderie, for me anyway, the camaraderie between the test pilots and between the original seven astronauts and the wonder of it all. Um, and the dedication it took and doing something meaningful with your, with your life. And that's why that movie hit me watching a camaraderie, the way those, they were, they weren't doing it for the money. They weren't doing it for the fame. They were doing it because they, they had a passion for it and they were working together to do it. And it was for the country and for science and engineering and the world. and, And I, I, I wanted to be a part of that team more so than I wanted to fly in space. I mean, I wanted to fly in space too, to experience that but I really wanted to be a part of a team like that I and mean, that's what, what
1: uh, massive you know I was uh, you know obviously John Glenn I knew him well I flew and mm-hmm. he flew me one time from uh, Columbus to DC and then cool. we got in a car he was driving to the Capitol, and he had a Coke and a candy bar. He smeared the candy bar all over himself, the Coke spilling on the floor. We got to the Capitol. I said, look, I'll go up in space with you, but I ain't ever getting in a car with you again. But he was the <laughs> typical example of a great fighter pilot, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, that, was the, that was kind of the old school Mm-hmm. And uh, and think about what those guys did. And, and John always got very animated talking about what happened when he was trying to do reentry. You know that story, really? right? Yeah, Maybe sure, you can yeah. tell or, remind our listeners about what was happening to him on his yes. way back.
2: So John Glenn, a great American hero. I did get to know him fairly well, Governor, when uh, I was his family escort for his flight on the shuttle. I was a new astronaut and I was asked to be a family. They always have two astronauts as family escorts. And I got to do that for that flight, STS-95. So I got to know, uh, to John, I got to know John and Annie and their kids and grandkids. And it was just a wonderful experience getting to know him. He lived up to, to everything you would hear about an American hero that you heard about him. He was the real deal. Just a wonderful guy. Um, and what happened to him, John, as you're saying, when he was, he was the first American to orbit. We had two Americans go up on short flights, similar to the Jeff Bezos flight. In fact, the reason why that spaceship that Jeff Bezos has been flying people on is called New Shepard. It's named after Alan Shepard, the first American who went up on a suborbital flight. Gus Grissom followed him Grissom, and then the yeah. third American in space was uh, John Glenn, the first to orbit. And while he was orbiting, they weren't sure that if they were getting telemetry down that it was uh, they possibly his he, his uh, landing bag had deployed, which meant this heat shield might be compromised. And so they weren't sure what was going to happen to him on entry. They decided to cut the flight a little bit short. I think it was after 3 orbits, they were supposed to do 7. And he had a line up to re-enter at just the right angle with the hope that the heat shield was intact and not damaged because they were afraid it might have been compromised. So it was pretty heroic what he did uh, coming down under those conditions. They weren't sure if he had a very good chance that if, if it had deployed, uh, if, there was, if it was damaged, if the landing have burned, up, had deployed, right? he, he would have burned and up. What do you call it? The That's yaw. Right. He
1: used to talk about the yaw all the time. Mm. He, what, what was that? What were those terms he used well, as he kind of yeah. guided it back?
2: Yeah, so you have when you move around uh, on Earth, you're typically moving around in in three dimensions. But it's either left, right, uh, you know, forward and back, up, down. We have that in space too, but we also have rotations that you have to be concerned. So you have you have you can go straight forward, which we'll call that the x direction, side to side, which is our y direction, and up and down, which is a z direction, and in between different vectors and so on. But when you start rotating about each one of those axes. You have roll, pitch, <laughs> and yaw. Have I lost you yet? Yaw. Yeah. I so used he's to always talking about yaw. he's talking about a yaw is a rotation about the axis, kind of going up down. If you drew an arrow up down to your through your head, yaw is that direction. If you kind of like roll to the right, you're not going right or left. You're just kind of turning right or left. I'm turning in my chair right now. No one can see it. But if you if you rotate yourself about your chair right and left, that would be a yaw motion, and that's what he's talking about. One of those rotations that he had a line up perfectly to get back back home safely.
3: Now my understanding is uh with those original Apollo astronauts mm-hmm. uh, Part of the, 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 perhaps the number one thing about all of them was their ability to control their emotions, that uh, it, it become old hat and or like fear was something that they knew couldn't, could be detrimental up there in yeah. space. And, and then hearing obviously stories of you coming up perhaps <laughs> with a fear of heights and things of that yeah. nature. And it, it does seem like going through the path of fighter pilot is a mm-hmm. way in which to inure you to some of those fears. Has that shifted over over time or is that still as necessary as it ever was?
2: No, I I think it's still there, Jordan. And uh like like we said, I never experienced that type of danger as a as I wasn't a I was a private I'm a private pilot and a scuba diver and stuff like that, but but I never um I never was a fighter pilot in combat or anything like that. And there were a couple times that and we, we flew T thirty eight aircraft, there was a couple times where something would happen, and in flight I've had a couple in-flight emergencies, and also in space. <laughs> We had some We had some dicey stuff happen during one of my spacewalks, and I, it was it, I, you know, I don't think you ever really know how you're going to react in those situations, but what happened to me was especially when I'm during the space flight, when it happened during the spacewalk when we had some issues, that I realized it was no time to be scared that being scared was not going to help that's, that's that's what went to my mind. Just get it out of your mind it's not going to be helpful. and I think if you're able to get scared, that's a luxury. Being scared or worried things probably aren't that bad. If you're in a situation, I'm going to worry about this for a while. I'm going to take, you know, oh, I'm so panicked. Panic, and that, that's a luxury. If, you're, if you have time to do that, the situation isn't really that bad, I think. Because in a couple times where it's been no kidding, we have to really focus here, I, I, I felt that that's not going to help. And I think it's somewhat of a maybe a survival instinct. that I think just about everyone has. You just don't find yourself in these situations quite often. It's only happened to me when I was an astronaut where I felt that way that, whoa, you know, being scared right now is not going to help. I need to concentrate here in order for to give myself an opportunity for a good outcome.
1: What about, um, you know, I was I actually wanted to ask you about the fear of heights, yeah. and you covered it, yeah. and the fear maybe of small spaces too. Yeah. Um, so here you are on a spacewalk, right? Mm-hmm. And you're looking down at the Earth. Yeah. Um, I mean <laughs> – that's like isn't that a fear of heights? It's a long way down. <laughs> I mean, how yeah. th- tell? I mean, how did you t- tell us about the spacewalk? It, what it's like yeah. when you crawl out of the capsule? You bet. What it's like when you, you're on that little tether, right? And you're going to float
2: yeah. out there? No, it's it's well. The, far, let me address the height thing. For whatever reason, <laughs> Governor, as long as I'm moving, I'm okay. So if I'm in a you know an airplane in the sky, uh, right? We would, you know, I'm fine space space. the planet's 350 miles away and we're trucking across it you know i'm I, i'm okay yeah. zip line, rappelling all that I'm stuff with is fine. i'm with you i don't like looking easy. over the edge of a bu- looking over the edge of a building <laughs> is just or walking totally across a bridge no good i don't uh, do, you, you know,
3: uh, do you feel like do you feel like, like you're moving like when you when you are doing a spacewalk like when you turn away mm-hmm. from uh, the the ship or the, the station yeah. and look down at Earth, does it mm-hmm. feel like you're moving? Does it feel like you're falling? What's the sensation?
2: No, you just it's just like you're motoring across the planet, and you don't have any sensation of speed. You're going seventeen thousand five hundred <laughs> miles an hour, which is fast. I timed it on my watch. coast the coast one time, and I was in the cabin, Baja California to Miami, eleven minutes. It's fast. You're really moving, and you know that, but. you don't have any sense of speed it's not like if you're traveling fast in a car or going downhill on your bicycle and you you know you you feel like you know that's where i may get a little scared i'm going to slow down a little bit i'm going too fast um but but as long as you're moving it's fine and your brain is is there to protect you in a lot of cases the only time i felt the problem with the heights is when i was on the robot arm looking down at the payload bay of the shuttle so i was about 60 feet in the air and the payload bay 60 is 60 feet away from me 60 feet above the now, I'm 350 miles away from the planet, but that's too far away to worry about. But when I got this, this motion that I had moving or looking over the edge of my feet and seeing a reference 60 feet below, I, that's when I felt like, oh, something kicked in in my head where I was like, oh, be careful here. But I was just floating anyway. I knew that nothing could happen. But it's just what your brain your brain has got you know stuff inside of you and, and that tells us, watch out, you might get hurt. And I think that's what the, the hype thing is about if you're going too fast. But in space, most of the time, that's not an issue because you're so far away from the planet.
1: You were kind of proving Einstein's theory of relativity, right? I mean, yep. you know, that whole thing about how fast, you, you know, when somebody observes you moving fast. I mean, yeah. it must have been just... I thought, what could you say? What, no, and to
3: be, to be a, a walking out of space. I think you're, you're proving. We're, you're proving. Our,
1: we're like our jaws are
2: dropping because. Well, the, the, uh, you know, to, to I discuss- like that you're,
3: you're, you're proving yeah. both Einstein's theory of relativity and the plot of Cannonball Run. Like you can get <laughs> yeah, yeah, from Baja come. to New York yeah. 17 11, minutes. Yeah, 11 minutes. But the, 11. what
2: it's like, it's truly extraordinary, uh, Governor. And you asked me about what it was like to, to get out, to go in space is just awesome. You get a look at the planet, see the curve of it, see the, uh, the, the sun in a black sky, see the Terminator as you come along, which is the, the day-night line, see it moving across our planet, which is the rotation of the Earth. All that is so cool. but the so all, You couldn't see Arnold
1: Schwarzenegger. When you saw the Terminator, you were not referring no, no, to Arnold, not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. We call the that line... A, you had to have a hell of a telescope. I was going to say, yeah, 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 if, let, you're let, gonna
2: see, if
3: you're going to see the Terminator, you've got to do that in the theater. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> That's where <laughs> you have to see that, it.
2: Let me be clear. I'm not talking about that Terminator. We call the, <laughs> the line... The day-night line is a very visible line that separates night and day when you see it from space. And we call that the Terminator. Wow. And that's what's moving as, you rota- as, as you're as you going around the planet. You see that Terminator line moving. That's the day-night line, and it's due to the rotation of the Earth. But the beauty of our planet is just spectacular. When I, when I viewed it from space, the thought that went through my mind was, especially from the spacewalks, because now, instead of looking through the window, you're totally out there. You can look wherever you want. And you don't have a window in between you and the light so that it's not filtered. You're seeing just a th- through a thin visor. So the brightness of the sun is the brightest bright. It's like a pure white light. It's just beautiful the way it illuminates things. The darkness is, is the darkest dark I've ever experienced. It's like the, the absence of light. You need helmet lights to see what you're doing. But the beauty of our planet, I, I felt like the thought that went through my head was, this must be the view from heaven. If you can get up away from us and look at our planet, this is the way we have meant to be seen. And then... I dwelled on that and it just wasn't right. I said, no, 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 no. It's more beautiful than that. This is what heaven must look like. I thought I was looking into absolute paradise. And you then turn your head the other direction and look out into that darkness. And we've checked out the neighborhood. We've got nowhere else to go out there. And you look back over here and you see this oasis. So you get the sense of it's a beautiful paradise that we need to take care of. It's also very fragile. And also the sense of, of home for me changed as well in that experience. You know, I grew up out just out of Queens in New York, just outside of New York City. My hometown was my home when I was a little kid, Franklin Square. Then as I got older, I think I, when I thought of home, I thought of New York. And then as I was an adult, I, I thought myself more as an American. But now I, I really consider myself a citizen of, of our planet. When I think of home, after seeing it from up there, like, like I did, I, when I think of home, I think of Earth. That's where we all are, no matter where we're from, that's the home
3: that we share. So.
2: Those are some of the ways in which I, I started thinking differently about things as a result of the spacewalks.
3: Now, I know, I've, I've heard s- stories like this before. I, they call it, what, the overview effect of, yeah, of having this this perspective uh, that so few get. When you come back to space with that new perspective, like, how did you view, did, did you see a shift in the way you viewed current events, uh, conflicts, uh, environmental, uh, causes like, was there any perceptive shift that you, when, you, you felt in yourself when you landed
2: when I came back to
3: earth? Yeah.
2: I, yeah. Okay. So some things, you know, I, I remember on my first flight, I was looking out, looking out the window and thinking to myself, how could I ever get upset about things anymore? You know, this is such a great experience. It's going to change my perspective. And then I got home and we pull in the driveway and his shingles missing from the roof. Right? I'm like what happened? They're like, oh, we had a storm come in. And I'm like, why don't we call the guy? And my wife's like, you're the guy. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I, I get in the and then all of a sudden at night I'm hearing like frogs in the backyard in the pool. Like, what's going? Oh, the pool pump broke while I was away. And I got so I'm out there. You know, I've got a roof and a and a problem. With this it's, it's, Earth is much more complicated. It's much more difficult than living in, than being in space. So that stuff dealing with our regular stuff that we have on earth, um, you know, you quickly have to realize, okay, you know, I've, I've, we're, I'm back here on the planet, welcome home. But as far as the way I see things, I, I mentioned, you know, the, the idea that we all share this planet and we need to take care of it. Certainly, I think from the, um, from the environmental part of it, um, you see the thinness of our atmosphere. And if you, and you can see it very clearly, particularly at night, it shows up as like, kind of like a bluish, um, greenish line above our atmosphere, above our planet. It's really thin and we know it's thin, right? I can talk to you all day that it's thin, but when you actually see it, you're like, holy cow, it's really thin. It's, if you think of the earth as an onion, it's the top upper layer of that onion, the, the size relationship of that thinnest peel of the onion. That's the size relationship of our atmosphere to the rest of the planet. So you realize, you know, that's we've got a we've got a really fragile place that we live. We need to try to take care of it as best we can. I mean, we have to live here and, you know, we can't be perfect about what we do. But but certainly it gave me more of an appreciation for how beautiful the place is, how fragile it is and how we we're all from the same. No matter where you're from, uh, we're all really from the same place. We're all from Earth.
3: We'll be right back. And now back to the show. You
1: know, um mask you went to Columbia, and then I think that you you went to MIT I think mm-hmm. which yep. you know they were that's you know those that's Columbia's impressive MIT like so y- here's what people want to know. And I like the fact that you're afraid of heights and you you didn't you were not a pi- you know a you know, one of those hotshot pilots or anything. Can people were you can people become an astronaut in other words Does this become attainable? You got turned down a couple of times when you tried to apply. Yeah. Is it possible for like a normal person who's not, you know, (laughs) going to MIT or whatever to become an astronaut? Because it just seems like you've got to be a superhero.
2: Uh, well, I, governor, Mm -hmm. I consider myself to be a very normal person. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I worked hard, uh, in school, uh, didn't set any records, and there was a lot of setbacks, both when I was at Columbia and, and uh, at MIT. I was, you know, I wasn't the, the best student they ever had at either one of those places. Um, I, I, I had my, my academic struggles too, I, 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 but I never gave up. And I think that was—I mean, I failed my qualifying exam, for example, for my PhD when I was at MIT. And I—I I, I somewhat, my advisor was a very kind man, kind of a, Tom Sheridan, still alive, very fatherly guy, and and. Uh, after I failed that exam, which you need to get your doctorate, he kind of said, I don't know if you want to spend another, they give you a second chance, but apparently I set like a record for failure up there, how badly I did. Um, and he said, well, we'll give you another chance, but you got to think about if You know, if you really cut out for this and I gave it another try and I was able to get through it. I I think that, um, if, if someone has a dream, no matter what it is, no matter what, if you're trying to do something, especially trying to do something that is difficult or extraordinary, it's not going to be easy. And it's not because you're, stupid or unqualified. It's just that it's it's difficult or competitive or it's going to take some grit. And uh, you mentioned it took me three tries. It took me four tries to become an astronaut. I got ejected twice outright. My third time, I was medically disqualified. When I, I got an interview my third time, back then you had to see pretty well unaided acuity. It was kind of like the standard military requirements. They've changed all that now. But back then, I don't even know if we had LASIK back then. Now it's, it's acceptable. There's, there's different things you can do if you can't see very well. But I could not see, I could not pass the eye exam, and I was medically disqualified. And um, it was pretty disheartening because they couldn't even consider my application any longer. Um, and what I did is I thought about it for a little bit and talked to people, and I realized I had to figure out a way to see better. I found a, um, naturally, I, I, so I found, I couldn't do, as I said, LASIK or any of that, but I did find an optometrist who worked with vision training where you could try to improve your eyesight by doing exercises and these other techniques that she had, and I went to see her. She was a little surprised to see me because she she only worked with kids. So she saw me sitting in a chair. She's like, "Well, I only, I only works with kids. I've only never worked with anyone over 10. But I begged her. I said, oh, "Look, I could be really immature. You won't even know the difference." So she decided to <laughs> she decided to help. And I was able to pick up a couple lines on the eye chart just to become requalified, so they could they could consider it again and they could consider me again. And then I got another interview. The next application got by the eye exam and, and was selected. I, the way I see it, John, is that what I would tell people if they're interested in doing this or whatever they're interested in, the odds are maybe against you. And I, I realized when I was a uh, remember watching astronauts on TV, one time I was on, I was on at MIT cooking dinner and the news was on and some astronauts were being interviewed. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. When I saw that on the TV, so I knew it's clarity. I, Never forget, looking at it and knowing that's what I wanted to do. And then the thought that went to my mind was, but you'll never get a chance to do that. As you said, John, normal people don't get to do that, right? Governor, they don't do that. Real people, who's gonna, you'll never get a chance to do that, was the thought to my head. But that really wasn't the case. It just was unlikely. There's a difference between impossible and unlikely. And impossible might be one out of a million. But for you mathematicians, that's a non-zero outcome. That's just .00, a lot of zeros and a one at the end. The only way that one turns to a zero, and you know what the outcome is going to be, is if you give up. Once you give up, or you don't try, you know what the outcome is. You're you're by certainly not going to achieve whatever it is you want to do. So, I think that uh, I think most astronauts are actually kind of like that. We mentioned my friend Scott Kelly. You know, he he by his own admission wasn't the greatest student uh, when he was going through college, but he had a dream. Once he read the, the book, The Right Stuff, which he owes a lot of his his passion to that book by Tom Wolfe, and uh, it led him to to become an astronaut. And I think most of us who achieve that um, become NASA astronauts. I think we have similar stories in that way, that we had a, a dream, a passion, and we got knocked
3: down but didn't give up. I mean, it's, in, it's inspiring to hear NASA should be hiring smarter people, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. You're Uh, right. (laughs) This is why there's the Blue Origins, the SpaceX's. If NASA was like, I mean, this inspiring mass, but God bless. Uh, I guess that's my my secondary question in Mm -hmm. hearing about these astronauts just like you who work hard to get there. And Mm -hmm. traditionally, it's the NASA trek. That's the only way you're getting to space. Now it feels like the other way to get to space is to become a billionaire and make money (laughs) off of putting bookstores out of business. When you look at sort of this new billionaire boys club who Mm -hmm. uh, are taking these joyrides to space, uh, how do you feel?
2: Uh, Overall, I think that this
3: is a good thing. I think having
2: more access to space is a good thing. People, I mean, having the joyride, you know, the tourists, I think that's not necessarily the case for everyone who goes in that way. I think that there is a purpose. Right now we have a private astronaut mission that's up right now. The very first one at the space station, one of them, an experienced astronaut, my friend Mike Lopez-Alegria is going as kind of like an employee of this company Axiom who's, who is right, organized this, but three others are paying a lot of money to go do this, but they each have a purpose. It's research, it's education, it's so on. I think that people see a purpose in it. So I think that the good way, the way I try to look at this in the good sense is that Not everyone is able to or wants to become a career astronaut like I was, but they could still do something useful by going to space. Um, I think that, you know, that that it also opens up opportunities for for research, uh, the access part of it. So, for example, my students at Columbia flew a flight experiment, a medical flight experiment on the Blue Origin vehicle before they put people on it. This was back in one of the flights in December of 2019. They got a, got a chance to fly a flight experiment on that for a relatively small amount of money. They were able to fundraise for it. And they also flew an experiment on a SpaceX vehicle up to Space Station. They did that more recently. They just did that a couple months ago. So they had a chance, this great opportunity to fly experiments in space where when I was a student, forget it, not even when I was a student five years ago, we couldn't do that. So it opens up the access to it. But I, I it's a different, you know, different about this, like, you know, who's an astronaut, who's not? Well, I've been. I've been thinking about this. When I became an astronaut and I was in the same astronaut class as Scott Kelly and Mark Kelly and Peggy Whitson, who has the record for most time in space of any American, we were all considered astronauts when we were selected. We were selected as astronaut candidates, went through two years of training and became astronauts, NASA astronauts, without ever flying in space. It was a job title. It was a career, just like carpenter, plumber, engineer, whatever, whatever it might be. We were professional astronauts. Now it's more like an experience. These people are, you know, they, but, but I think it's just, you know, it's, it's a different, it's, a, it's just different categories. There's still the NASA astronauts. I'm not even a NASA astronaut anymore. I'm a former NASA astronaut because NASA doesn't want to be associated with me if I say anything stupid on your program. Like, oh, no, no, it doesn't work for us anymore. So I'm a former NASA astronaut. So, so what happens
3: a- when you go to the bar, when you go to the astronauts bar in Houston yeah. and all of you guys, you and the Kellys are hanging yeah. out, sharing stories and Michael Strahan walks in yeah. and wants to grab a beer.
2: Yeah.
3: Is, is he your fellow astronaut, Michael Strahan? How, 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 what's, what's the, what's the conversation like with the somebody who went up for a, a quick couple minute joyride? Well, Michael Strahan's a pretty cool guy. I've got a chance. you got a lot I've to talk to about. A, that, that I've to be on with Good Morning <laughs> So he's a different <laughs> story. I mean,
2: I, I saw Michael Strahan. I would ask him about, you know, what's, how did he like it? And what was it like getting hit in the NFL? So that, you know, that's, that's a guy I would want to talk to. But uh, certainly I would ask him about his experience and what he thought. I saw Jeff Bezos recently and, and asked him uh, about his flight. And uh, he, had, he had this panel to get with him and his brother, Jeff Bezos' brother and Captain Kirk. William Shatner was there talking about it. So I got to sit in the audience and listen to these guys uh, talk about their experience. And, I, you know, and it was another, there was a couple of astronauts with me and they're like, it's just like us. When we came back from space, and wanted to tell people about what it was like and what the experience was. And I've met a few of these people now that have gone up as not the professional astronaut, whatever you want to say, tourist or commercial astronaut, or whatever it is. You want to ask them what, what they thought of it. What was it like? What you know, it's, it's an extraordinary experience no matter who goes through it i think it's it's something that's worth hearing about
3: it's wild though we're you know t- telling these stories of these icons of space exploration and then a panel with captain kirk and yeah. jeff bezos it it does it feels like it belittles it i th- th- there is a I, there, there are critics who say we shouldn't be spending money on space exploration right now. That money we should be focusing on making Earth stronger. And I, I will tell, as a huge space fan, I even did a whole special. Scott Kelly was in it. I have yeah. such a love for space, and I think there's there's so much to be said for the inspiration that comes from uh, achieving the unbelievable and to push boundaries yeah. in a way. And I think, as we know, even if you don't get to space, the the after effects of even the, the science behind uh, the moon missions uh, involves so many other industries as well. But I think the critics are getting louder and louder about we see these images of space tourism and these billionaires, and we see the problems that we have on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel there's validity in people saying, let's stop talking about going to the moon? Let's start focusing more on climate change here in America?
2: Oh, I, I, I think, Jordan, uh, to solve our big problems here on Earth, to increase our understanding, I, I think those answers actually lie in space. I think that we're able to study our planet, understand it. See changes in it, make a difference in that way. We never spend; we really never spend the diamond space. We spend all that money that you've mentioned here on Earth. I think that the 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 visionaries that are involved in this, like or the big like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, um, when I've heard them speak about it, they're really looking right now at the small steps toward a bigger solution of helping to save our planet not by totally leaving it and never coming back and going to Mars because no matter where we can't find any place as good as this wherever we go it's going to be about preserving what we have here so by offloading some of our development or energy uh opportunities to other places whether it's the moon or mars or asteroid mining or solar power or satellite communications whatever we do offloading some of the stress on our planet it's about improving our life here. We're never going to abandon this place. This is our home. But I think by exploring and going other places, we can help preserve what we have here and make it better.
1: Well, one of the things, Mass, that you could do is you could begin to think about moving manufacturing to space. Those things Absolutely. that create emissions, uh, you know, th- there's another way to think about it. But listen, Absolutely. you know, with all these flights, as Jordan points out, you know, I still have to think there's a lot of risk. In the beginning... We, everybody in America, gathered around their little black and white television sets, and we did it, you know, back when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and and subsequent flights. Um, But I get the sense that we've kind of lost that awe of space, you know, that is anybody paying any attention? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think part of the reason why the space program went down is people didn't explain the practical benefits of it but you still have risk. I'd like you to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about risk. Mm-hmm. And secondly, how do we recapture the awe, mm-hmm. the awe of, of what it means to explore?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, Governor, the risk is there. And uh, I think that the systems they have now, what we're flying are my fellow astronauts and what these private astronauts went up uh, on uh, last week, the SpaceX vehicle and the Blue Origin vehicle, for example, i think they're as, as safe as as we can get there the most dangerous vehicle we had was the space shuttle we had two major accidents uh space shuttle challenger and then columbia my first flight was on columbia and we were the last successful landing of columbia the next time columbia went to space is when we lost the spaceship and the whole crew which marked the end of the space shuttle program and that we were going to have a few more flights about we had about another 20 or so flights, and then we ended the program and moved on. But um, the vehicles that we're flying now are much different than what we had back in that era. Uh, They're much safer. They're more automated for the emergency procedures. So you're not reliant on humans to do everything. You can rely on on the computers to help you. The escape system is much different. They do have a very good ejection system where if the rocket starts coming undone, the spacecraft with the people inside can come away. They actually had that for Apollo as well. We didn't have that with the shuttle. You kind of trapped inside of this thing under most circumstances. So I think they're much, they're much safer today than what we've had in the last, the last few decades with the shuttle, for example. But that doesn't mean that something bad still can't happen. I mean, you're still on top of rocket fuel and, and something something could happen. So the risk is still there, but I think it's, it's as safe as it ever was. And I think that it will continue to operate safely. Um, at least I hope. For a long time, you know, eventually something's probably going to happen, but you know, the likelihood of it, I, I think, is, is small compared to what we we had with the shuttle, as an example. Um, the second part of your question, I'm sorry, remind me about awe. How do we recapture awe, yeah.
1: the awe of space? And people showed pictures of Hubble, and mm-hmm. I thought they were pretty amazing. But yeah. I don't think that, did, that it was the the combination of the danger, mm-hmm. the, the heroism yeah. of the of the astronauts, yeah. The new frontier. I think there now, private sector may make up for that. They don't need the awe, but mm-hmm. I just think awe is important when it comes to discovery.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think for me, a lot of that was wrapped up with the, I mean, I, one of the first things I can remember is the Apollo program and the, the guys on the moon when I was six years old. And that was huge. I mean, I was a six year old and I realized maybe it was, I, everyone thought it was important. You know, my dad who worked for the fire department in New York. That was the most important thing going on. These are, these are heroes. This is, as you said, the awe, the exploration. Everyone, all the teachers at school, everybody, every the whole world paid attention to this. But it was huge. We were landing people on the moon. Uh, even if we go back to the moon, which we are, I think, going to do, it's not going to be as as spectacular as that, as that accomplishment. I don't think it's a... I don't think it's it's a knock on what's been going on since. I think it's, and I this is what I it, I was rekindled in these thoughts when we had the 50th anniversary of uh, of Apollo 11. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16, and then the last one, 17, this summer. So we've gone through these 50th anniversaries that no one's really realizing. I don't think, except for the Apollo 11. But when Apollo 11, we went through that, and it was so much press about that back now almost three years ago. Uh, it was. It, it made, me, made me think about it is that it wasn't that we haven't done great stuff since. It's just that that was so spectacular. Yeah. You know, we, can't t- we can't come, even if we get people to Mars, I think that the reaction is going to be, wait a minute, I thought we already did that. I think people, you know, I think people think, you know, half of my relatives, a lot of them thought, I think I went to the moon. I mean, it's kind of, we're not going to be able to get people's attention like we did when we put those when we put those guys on the moon. I think it's gonna take something like finding life somewhere else, or that is gonna be the next big the next big uh awe inspiring news all over the world kind you of. You think there is uh, life thing. somewhere else? Uh, I do think there is. I think do, huh? if you look at what Hubble has shown us in billions of galaxies with billions of stars, with multiple planets around most of those stars, that I think that there is I think the the chances of it being there somewhere else, I think is there. Um Going going back to the awe, I think that the students that I teach at Columbia are very excited more than than I think I was in some ways about the space program because it's not just going governments going; it's it's also these companies going, so they can get involved in entrepreneurship and doing something new. And this, it's I think it's where the future is. There's so many opportunities, not just for flying people, but in satellite communications and manufacturing and as you said, looking for solutions to pollute other places other than, you know, than our planet, if we can figure out solutions to, to helping our environment in space. And they're all excited about these things. So I think there's a lot of excitement. Yeah. There's a huge amount of interest in young people. But I agree with you. We don't have that awe. And I don't think we need to, I don't know if we
3: can do anything about it. I think that's okay. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting hearing you talk about it. And even going back to what got you interested into it, Tom Wolf, it's the crafting of the story around the mission. And then you, yeah. you, you look at what's happening now. And I am critical or at least skeptical of seeing some of these uh, billionaires gallivanting and seeing William Shatner up there. But <laughs> I will say they are playing in the. <laughs> The parlance of our times, which is mm-hmm. it's reality TV, it's personality yeah. driven, and it's if if you want to get people to maybe pay attention to not normally, you probably send a celebrity to space. And so perhaps it's the curmudgeon in me who is is critical of those tactics, but there might be new if if we're trying to craft the story that gets people back on board. Perhaps these are the the early uh, the early syntax. I guess when you look at um, Elon Musk. Bezos, Richard Branson has his own, uh, he's, he's been up at least to the, the lower parts of, mm-hmm. of space. Uh, out of all of those, is there anyone you have more faith in uh, actually achieving some of their goals?
2: Well, I, I have faith in all of them. I hope they're all successful. I think there's enough differences between what they're doing, and there's enough room for all of them, for all that they do. Um, so I, I, really, I don't know if I have a, a favorite. I guess I'm kind of rooting for all of them they're all a little bit different. Branson's, Branson hasn't, I haven't heard much coming out of uh, Virgin Galactic lately. Um, I, you know, he, he can take off and land from a runway. So maybe that'll help us with, uh, with traveling places more quickly. I don't know, we'll see. Again, I haven't heard much from, from them uh, in the last few months. I think what, what, certainly what SpaceX and what Blue Origin are doing, I think is very impressive. Blue Origin, um, the next thing we mentioned, John Glenn, Governor. The next spacecraft that they're developing is called New Glenn, named after John Glenn. Uh, Jeff Bezos is very much, uh, you know, a, a, a product of the space program. He grew up um, he's a, you know, around, we're around the same age. He grew up yeah, in the 60s, 70s. Yeah, uh, he's recaptured
1: Mercury capsules. I know that he's pulled yeah. them up from the bottom of the right. ocean. He, started,
2: he, recovered, he right. went out on his own dime and recovered stuff that was landed in the ocean back in those days. And uh, so he's really a, a fan of the space program, was influenced by it. And that's why his orbital spacecraft that they're developing uh, is called New Glenn. It's named after after John Glenn. So um, I have a lot of faith in them. I have faith in what's going on with this private astronaut mission with with Axiom uh, and and others. Blue Origin is also trying to build commercial space stations. A a lot of this stuff um, was hoped to be done by NASA years ago. And I never really had an appreciation for this until a couple of years ago when we were talking about we, we, we were talking about with the, with the new spaceship when SpaceX was flying. I was speaking to Charlie Bolden, who, Governor, you might know Charlie, or maybe sure. you are Jordan. He was a former NASA administrator, Marine, uh, Marine general, NASA astronaut, great guy. And he and I were talking on a, on a podcast together about, about this, and he was saying when he was a new astronaut as a pilot, that they were converting the man. this is back like in the early 1980s, they were converting the manuals of the space shuttle to be flown by a commercial aircraft company like United or Delta, one of those companies to train their pilots to fly this thing as a, as a way to transport people around the planet. Can you imagine? And, and they also were building space stations. They were going to build space stations that could go up for space manufacturing and research. And you would go up with the space shuttle every year, or every six months and 10, these things and come back and this, they wanted to commercialize all of that. There was a huge commercialization effort with the shuttle. And then they had their first accident and they were like, not so fast. And they more or less put an end to all of that. It's not going to be an operational vehicle that you can use as commercial transport. So it really hasn't only been in the last couple of years that the, the dreams that NASA had back 40 years ago with the space shuttle program have been realized. So I think that we're at a point now where Hopefully, this is a I think this is a good thing. And this is something that NASA has been hoping for. We're turning this over to commercial uh, commercial enterprise. Is there going to be hiccups? Yeah. Is it might it be irritating to see, you know, certain people fly or whatever it might, you know. But I think overall, I think it's a good thing. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens these next couple these next couple of years. But I think it's going to be an exciting
3: decade. Jordan, would you go up? Oh, I would love to. I mean, what I think the as somebody who has, you know, growing up with that in my dreams, and I think you know, hearing the experience, I think it sounds so profound. Would I put in any of the energy it takes to become an astronaut? No, no well, way. Well, with your no, weak no.
1: bones, you know, you have have to take a G-force. <laughs> I mean, that, this is not like you just get in and lift off like you're in your car. <laughs> the G-forces are— uh, Oh, yeah. They I've have been to... in the backseat of an F-16, and I, I know what, what these yeah. G-forces are like, would, and it, it ain't
3: fun. It needs to be like a first-class type scenario, okay. uh, really low on the bumps. I, I did I did uh, space <laughs> camp as an adult uh, a, a couple of years back, and I went— on their small little g-force thing that is made for children and i couldn't handle it it was it was too much on my poor weak bird bones let's just go back for a second
1: um neil armstrong who i had a chance to meet and mm-hmm. i also had a chance to meet buzz aldrin which is just you know what's amazing mm-hmm. um so here they are getting ready to land right first person on the moon and you yeah. had what, Collins was, I can't remember, was Collins was, was, cir- he was circulating? In the, he was orbiting in right. the command module. Right. Yep. So what do you think went on, <laughs> if anything, between Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin? You think, how, how was that to decide who's the first one to actually walk on the moon? How would you have
2: felt about it? If I, uh, how would I have felt about going yeah, on the moon? Yeah, if you or? were either not picked or you, I mean, how, how, how would like it the, have worked? To be the second guy on the moon? Yeah, that's a pretty good assignment. I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> go,
3: I you think I, that was tough I like going on, for them.
2: I'd like to go on another jet ride. I think you know, um, I think you need to be you need to appreciate the opportunities you have, and that's an extraordinary opportunity to be on the first moon landing or to be Michael or to be an astronaut even in the, what I did in the shuttle era, getting a chance to spacewalk. It is so such a great experience and i'm so grateful for that total, that's total the way total teamwork, i would react. right i'm, not, I'm total, not saying that's the way yeah. he reacted but that's the way i would right. react yeah
3: i think of michael collins michael collins yeah. uh, orbiting alone for yeah. what is that a, Essentially they had or uh, <laughs> i mean was it a day it wasn't fully a day but i mean that seems he so there for a little while yeah pr- profoundly lonely and frightening i, I can't yeah. imagine being alone that alone with myself and my own thoughts uh, yeah, for that amount of time
2: well, he, you know, he, he's talked. He, unfortunately, both he and Neil are gone. We, we lost Mike, not that long ago, about a year or so ago, he passed. Buzz is still around. Um, Neil Armstrong died years ago, almost 10 years ago now, I think. But um, I think those, I think all three of them, especially, you know, with, with Neil, uh, he, he saw it as a job. If you've seen the movie First Man or read the book, I think they actually yeah. portrayed his personality. And, 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 Governor, I was lucky enough to get to know him a little bit and meet him a few shy. times. Shy, you know, shy. It's all He'll painfully a shy. Yeah, almost embarrassed by the fame yeah. he attained. You know, he but but he was all about all of his colleagues, all the, the, the guys that have talked about him from that era. Uh, John Young, who was still an astronaut, a, a moonwalker, who was or Alan Bean. I'm, I've got a, <laughs> the audience can't see this, but I've got an Alan Bean painting, a lithograph behind me, one of my, one of my other heroes all these guys are gone now. But, um, but when he talked about Neil, he was the absolute right guy to be the first guy on the moon. He was all about business. He wasn't going to get distracted. Um, I even, when I met him the first time I asked him, how did he come up with the thing that he, that he said on the moon? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You know, I asked him, how'd you come up with that? Did your wife tell you to say that, you know, did you get a publicist? And he looked at me, and said, Mike, I didn't think about what I was going to say on the moon until after I landed on the moon. I was like, really? And he said, yeah, he goes, if I didn't land on the moon, there'd be no reason to say anything. He goes, you got to take, and he goes, that was a new astronaut at the time. And he said, you got to take care of business first and concentrate on the important stuff and not worry about all the other fluff. And that's why I think he was the right guy to be the first guy on the moon, because he had the right personality to get that job done and not be distracted. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they chose, they chose well. And I think all of his colleagues agree with that too. And Michael Collins, you know, was was about doing his job, um, and that's the way we were at NASA too, I and mean, it's, it's still that way now. Is that you're very grateful for the opportunity to do it? It's not just a tourist ride; it's a, it's a career. I look back on my time there, and and I miss my training as much as I miss my time in space. It was it was that sense of purpose that we had. The, the you know the 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 trips to space were extraordinary, but the the day to day work that we did i'm working in a control center i spent so many hours in there Capcoming in the control center the training i did in the pool the flying in the airplanes all of that is is that that figuring all those things out and doing all those things is what i what i really miss and I, I think that that those guys felt the same way about it and they were lucky to to get a chance to do those things and they were more than thrilled to play the roles whether they were the first guy on the moon or the last guy or the guy orbiting or Someone working in a control center, I think they were grateful to be a part of it
3: now I'm curious with your book you've you've made it also accessible for a younger audience to to track your journey what what, what are you what are you trying to um, what are you trying to get across to a younger audience who is is thinking about the idea uh looking up at space and wondering if it holds a place for them
2: uh, the answer is yes, we need them uh, we can use all the help we can get and if they find this exciting, uh, if this is something they're interested in, they, they should pursue it. It's it's not just NASA anymore. It's also these other companies we've been talking about that. And I think there's a the role for everybody who is interested in it. I think that's, I'm, I'm very biased. It caught my imagination as a little kid and it never let go of me. And uh, if people feel that way about it, uh, I think they should, they should pursue it. Uh, no matter what their interests are. You know, I've, I've, I got asked today in an event I was doing a kid asked me, or actually a parent asked me for the kid, what should they study if they want to become an astronaut? And certainly the STEM fields are still what what NASA astronauts, professional astronauts are studying, whether it's, you know, it's, it's being a, a fighter pilot, serving your country in the military and and uh, performing well there and getting selected by NASA the civilian route like I went, but it's very varied. I've flown in space with fighter pilots. I've flown in space with, with engineers and with astronomers and but I've also flown in space with a geologist who was a field geologist, who, not even like a lunar guy, you know, a uh, planetary guy. He, he was he was working for an oil company when he was selected as an astronaut, looking for oil out in the, out in the field. I flew in space with uh, with an oceanographer who just loved the ocean. My friend Rick Linehan is another example. A veterinarian, he liked taking care of animals. He was he wanted to work with dolphins, and that's what he did. And he also wanted to be an astronaut. So. I think there's there's many roles, and not just astronaut, but other things as well. So find that passion for kids. Find what you're interested in, whatever it might be, and pursue it. And be, get ready to be knocked down, and get back up. Keep, don't don't stop. Just keep going.
1: When when Dav- David Bowie died, there was a mm-hmm. tribute to him. I I think it was in Minnesota. It, it handed out sheet music and. I watched the thing. It it made it brought tears to my eyes because uh, mm-hmm. they sang "Starman." Cool, oh, yeah. Here's some of the lyrics. There's a starman waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow our minds. There's a starman waiting in the sky. He told us not to blow it because he know it's all, he knows it's all worthwhile. He told me let the children lose it, let the children use it, let all the ch- children boogie. And it was it was so amazing. Now, Mike Mass, is there a star man waiting to meet us?
2: I think that there is. I just hope I live long (laughs) enough to see it. I think think there is. There might be multiples. Governor, I do do believe believe there's life out there.
3: Hearing, Governor, you read that, it really makes me want to do hard drugs. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Spaceman and Astronaut's Unlikely Journey to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe and Spaceman, the True Story of a Young Boy's Journey to Becoming an Astronaut are both available now wherever you get your books and go. Go to uh, uh, com for more. Mike, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Jordan, thanks for having me and and Governor. I've admired both of you for a long time. It's great to, to get a chance to speak to you and I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
3: Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich & Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.